According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Proverbs chapter 15. We are in the final portion of the chapter from verse 25 down to verse 33, looking at all the blessings of community, humble community, which can be in a family setting, within a home can be in a village setting within a, uh, a extended family or a clan, can be in a neighborhood setting in terms of things there, for example, in a clan or a tribe. Some of these uh, concepts uh, are somewhat lost in the modern world compared to the ancient world, you know, where my siblings are scattered between here and Bellingham or Seattle and, and uh, so forth. But uh, nevertheless, the pattern remains true because the, the Word of God is eternal and we want to make the applications we can as we adapt this to the realities of modern life. So that's what we'll talk about here this morning. Before we get started, we'll take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father in His faithfulness to, uh, to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your truth. Uh, Father, uh, calling upon your faithfulness once again in the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he would uh, lead us into all things, even the deep things of God. So Father, bless our time in your word today. I thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. So main point 19 and the final point for the chapter, if you followed the whole outline all the way through. Proverbs 15 closes with a series of maxims on the blessings of humble community. On the blessings of humble community. And I think the structure of the chapter lends itself to this. I think the poetry supports this. When you're looking at the uh, the text, the fact that we have, as I've said before, the house and the boundary in verse 25. Uh, We have the house restated again in verse 27. We have other expressions in these verses that, that show a, an interaction between people. We have a prayer life in verse 29. Of course, you want your home to be a place of prayer. Um, we have reproof in verse 31. We have, I'm sorry, good news in verse 30, and then bad news or reproof in verse 31. We have discipline, and discipline is a, is a, is a family feature. Discipline uh, is something that is, is applicable towards children, to, applicable towards uh, even adults in, uh, in a spiritual aspect. So we'll talk about that. And then, of course, the fear of the Lord. You want to have the fear of the Lord in every community. So really, uh, I think I, I do like my title for this, A Series of Maxims on the Blessings of Humble Community. And so we started with the home building uh, application in verse 25, obviously consistent with Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. So um, you could have the most alert night watchman ever in the history of night watchmen. And uh, if the Lord has called for the destruction of that city, then uh, that's going to happen, no matter, uh, no matter how awake the night watchman happens to be. Likewise, you're trying to build up a house, and if God tears it down, He's, he's going to do it. And His sovereignty overrules whatever it is you think you're doing. And so... Um, and that's the aspect there in verse 25. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud. And all too often in the human experience, 
uh, the prideful humans want to build bigger houses. We want to build uh, not just the, you know, the, the house structure we live in, but our estate, our portfolio, our, our uh, net worth, our, our uh, household when it comes down to it. Remember, uh, house incorporates family, children, slaves, uh, assets, livestock, uh, ag- uh, agricultural benefits, and, and all the rest. So here we are building up, building up, building up. And, and we should be building up. It's the design to work. He put Adam in the garden and said, work. And we're expected to work. We're expected to produce. And we're expected to save. And we're expected to be generous. And we should have build up our house at the end of our life, have something to our children and our grandchildren, Proverbs says. But we can't do it in pride. If we're doing it in pride, it's wrong. And if we're doing it in pride, God's going to tear down that pride. Because far more important to him is our humility. And that's what's going to happen. In fact, that's how not only does it start that way in, in verse 25 with uh, the tearing down the proud, but then look how the chapter ends with humility. The fear of the Lord is instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. That's why I, I like taking 25 through 33 as a unit, as a structure, on, on a poetic basis and, and, and teach these things in this way. So we start with the home building endeavors. They must include the Lord. Our uh, greatest privileges from God include planning and communicating. And uh, planning and communicating, you might have noticed, if, uh, if those are strong, your family will do well. If those are weak or absent, uh, you're going to struggle, okay? Marriage without communication is rocky and uh, without planning and, uh, and just winging it without planning uh, leads to all kinds of turmoil within your marriage, within your family. And uh, no, he's designed us to be planners and communicators. And so when we see it here in verse 26 and verse 28, evil plans are an abomination to the Lord, but pleasant words are pure. So we have the thoughts and the intentions of our heart, and God is judging those. And if they're evil, that's an abomination. And, uh, and really, uh, sin, we all sin, Committing a sin is, is bad enough and it misses the mark. But when you're plotting and scheming and manipulating things and you're anticipating this course of action for whatever length of time you're, you're leading up to this course, that's compounding the judgment, compounding the issue in God's, uh, in God's uh, discipline. Perversions of these great blessings are among the most severe abominations. Verse 8, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. So when we have the blessings of communication, God is a, is a creator, which means he's inventive, he's imaginative. We are to plan as he plans, and God is a communicator. We are to communicate. You, you walk through the six days of creation, what do you observe? Not just creation, but communication. God said, let there be light. Everything he did, he did via proclamation. And, and that's not, not a coincidence. That's not a, an empty detail. Every day was spoken into existence. God communicated and it happened. And I think Trinitarian-wise we could say the Father spoke and the Son did it. The Son executed the will of the Father. He's always been achieving the will of the Father. And so when we have these privileges, how then do we incorporate that in our home? Is our home a place of planning? Is it a place of communication? Do we sit down? Do we discuss what it is that we are intending to do? And do we ask for prayer in, uh, in these things? And in all your ways acknowledge Him, He will direct your steps. So that's, 
another aspect of our home life. From there we move on to the wages of unrighteousness and that they are costly to the soul. That's verse 27. He who profits illicitly troubles his own house. And so we start to find all the ways we can bring in extra income, all the ways we can profit. Well, there are ways we can profit that are not ethical, they are not legal, they are not moral, they are not biblical. And uh, if we were not saved, we might consider such things. Or we might just jump in with both feet and not even give it a second thought if we weren't biblical in our approach. And so the wages of unrighteousness, as Second Peter 2.15 calls it, uh, or uh, just the, the evil gains do not profit. Yes, they're gains, but you don't profit because uh, of the damage that's done to your soul. And so you trouble your own house, but he who hates bribes will live. And so in some cases, do you financially suffer for doing the right thing? Of course. You were offered a bribe, you could have taken it. Had you taken it, you'd have had more, more money in your pocket. But at what cost? What's the price you pay for that? And uh, it's not worth the cost, not to your soul, not on the eternal scale of things. And so this becomes important too. And this is what you know, husband and wives have to hash out as they're trying to figure out their, their budget. This is what you've got to instill into the kids and, and things, uh, things of that nature. Then we have the prayer life, or not. <laughs> and sin creates the obstacle. Uh, that's point D. Sin creates an obstacle for our prayer life. Uh, the, that's verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. And so this is true, of course, on an individual basis. This is true on a marital basis. Husbands and wives that are heirs together of the grace of life, uh, they, there should be marital prayers related to that. And then family prayers. Since, uh, as we saw in Genesis this morning, that when you have multiple generations uh, that you can call upon the name of the Lord on that basis, even to the third generation where it says there with Adam, Seth, and Enosh, when, when Enosh was born then it says men began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that was in the, with the third generation on the scene then you get the blessings of being able to, to pray together, to worship together, to study the Word of God together, to sing hymns together, to take communion together, and, uh, and all those things that are uh, vital in the raising up of the next generation. So, prayer life. And obviously, if you regard iniquity in your heart, forget it. God says He's not listening. And we went through these verses last week. Uh, correct? We went through these verses last week? Anybody here last week? Paying attention? Yes, we did go through the... Okay. See, I never listen when I'm teaching, so I just have to trust you guys. Did we, did we read these? Okay. So Psalm 66, 18, Isaiah 1, where he's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, you're trampling my courts. Ezekiel 8, 18. And for church-age Melchizedek priests, this is absolutely vital. To be the house of God. To be the house of God. To be that spiritual temple that he's building us into. To be that temple. We're not talking about to be saved. We're talking about to be the temple. The temple that worships, the temple that prays, uh, that, that offers up prayers and supplications and thanksgiving. To be the house of God, you can't be carnal. That's, uh, that's the whole danger of, of falling away there in Hebrews 3. It's not losing your salvation. It's being a, a reversionistic believer that's still saved, but is not functioning as the temple he should be. And so, um, talking about the house Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
So this is absolutely universally true for every church age believer. Not just the pastors, not just the elders, every believer. From day one, if you were saved this morning, this is you. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And Jesus, he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses also was in all his house. And so uh, the contrast here between Moses and Jesus. But we're talking about priestly service here with the introduction of Moses in chapter 3. And then um, obviously every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Moses was faithful in his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son. There's a contrast. There's a, a greater than illustration. This is all, part of all those superiorities of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. So a son is superior to a servant. And a servant can serve in the house, but the son lives there. He resides there. He's the son of the owner. He will be the owner someday. And uh, all the difference in the world. And, and what are we in our priesthood? We're sons. We have sonship as we function as a house. Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Whose house we are if. All right. And that's the if that scares everybody. Because it is a third class condition. And it might be true, might not be true. We might hold fast, we might not hold fast. We might throw it away and walk in darkness. See? And so that's why it's useful that we understand, well, what are we talking about with respect to a house? Does this mean we lose our salvation? Are we not saved anymore? No, the house is our temple function as we, as we serve in worship. So whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. And so then he goes through the, the verses there about entering into rest that... Uh, we see so many times in, in Hebrews. So again, back to Proverbs 15, that prayer, is the Lord near or is the Lord far? If, if there seems to be some distance there, right? If uh, with human beings, it could be a two-way street and probably is. If, with, with human beings, if you notice, there seems to be a distance here. We used to be a lot closer than we are now, uh, but now things seem to be more distant. Why is that? Okay, well, two-way street. Probably, you know, you moved one direction, they moved another direction, and you know, that happens over time. That can happen in human relationships. But with God, it doesn't work like that. With God, if there used to be intimacy, but now there's distance, which one of you moved? Okay, it wasn't God. It, it, you know, you're the one that sinned. You're the one that fell out of fellowship. God is immutable, unchanging, always in fellowship with Himself, always wanting to be in fellowship with us. So if we put distance there, it just seems like, you know, prayer isn't what it used to be. Uh, Well, that's a one-sided issue and that's up to us to change our thinking called repentance, to confess, to be restored to fellowship, and to return to that intimacy that that He desires. All right. Which brings us now to verse 30. Bright eyes gladden the heart and good news puts fat on the bones. Now this verse is a synthetic parallelism as opposed to antithetical parallelism. Uh, the A part and the B part agree. A lot of times they're different and there's a but in the middle of the verse, but here they agree. They're both saying the same thing, that uh, both the A part and the B part of verse 30 are positive. They're happy uh, concepts. Bright eyes gladden the heart. That is, eyes of, of enlightenment uh, gladden the heart. And good news puts fat 
on the bones. This is the benefit of living in the Word of God. This is the benefit of always fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so that's where the brightness comes in. The uh, bright eyes, or the Hebrew actually is the light of the eyes, the light of the eyes references the enlightenment of Scriptures and the resulting encouragement from the good news of Scripture. And really, um, taking both the, the enlightenment part from the A part of this verse and the gospel part from the second part of the verse, the B part, combining them into a, a summary statement here, bright eyes or the light of the eyes references the enlightenment of Scripture and the resulting encouragement from the good news of Scripture. And this is, uh, this is our heritage, this is our glory. God gave us 66 books in the canon of Scripture. And man, they are infinitely deep. And we can spend, we should spend our entire lives in the Word of God because that's where the enlightenment comes from. That's where the encouragement comes from. If uh, you're going through a season of discouragement, man, get on, get on doctrine, crash program. Fix your eyes on Jesus and, and stay there. Just stay in the Word, stay in the Word, constantly saturating your soul with the Word of God. Because <coughs> that's where the enlightenment comes from. You think it's going to come from the uh, Austin American statesman? <laughs> you know? You read the front page of the newspaper, does that brighten your eyes? Does that uh, provide light for your eyes? Probably provides a lot of darkness. And that's the antithesis of light. And, and what it is, <clears throat> the, the, uh, we're going to see Jesus in Matthew 6 and Luke 11. Jesus said the eye is the lamp of the body. <coughs> Excuse me. The eye is the lamp of the body. And so what you absorb through your eyes, the things you're reading, the things you're looking at, the things you're dwelling on, that's going to affect your body. Whether your body is full of light or your body is full of darkness. It affects you what you're looking at. But before we get there, we've got uh, Proverbs. Backing up to Proverbs 6. <coughs> Proverbs 6.23. And this is why uh, it's in, in the parental wisdom portion of the book. Uh, as in many of the early proverb chapters, it's uh, exhorting children. So verse 20 says, My son, observe the commandment of your father. Do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. That way you don't lose them. You know, when you're a kindergartner and you're going off to school and you got the house key on the chain around your neck so that you can't you can't uh, lose it when you come, you don't lose it at recess or, or whatever. And you come home, you pull the key out from under your shirt, you can unlock the door. And uh, well, this is what you're doing with the Word of God. Tie them around your neck. You know, if you ever lose your head, then okay. <laughs> you won't need doctrine at that point, you'll be with the Lord. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk to you. Ever have a Bible class just come back at you live and in color a week after you heard it the first time? And oh, that's what that verse was about. Okay. For the commandment is a lamp. The teaching is light. And uh, reproofs for discipline are the way of life. 
We'll talk about reproof next. That comes up, uh, actually that comes up in two more points under subpoint G. There's reproofs. If you're in the Word of God, how long does it take before the, it starts getting personal and convicting and the reproof starts saying, you know, okay, that's got to that's gotta get adjusted. That's something that has to, has to change. So light is a good thing and it comes through the Scriptures. There's no other source of light than the Scriptures in this world. Psalm 119, we know this one. <clears throat> We've got hymns based on this one. Psalm 119, verse 105. <clears throat> Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. See, it's a light that not only instructs us and enlightens us, but it then impels and motivates us to make the application, to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only that uh, deludes themselves. And so, uh, yeah, the word is so vital. You can't read Psalm 119 without realizing this is a, a, a believer that was absolutely in love with the word of God. In, in all 176 verses, he's just celebrating how precious doctrine is uh, to him day by day. And then, of course, now our Lord in Matthew chapter 6. It's parallel to Luke 11. Luke 11 is actually longer. We'll start, we'll read them both, but Matthew 6, I think we're most familiar with. <coughs> funny, I had lunch with Pastor Tim Hankins on Monday and, and uh, <laughs> just ministries are different, right? Because we go through the Gospels and I'm much more familiar with, with Matthew references and okay, if there's a Mark or Luke parallel, I, I kind of know it. But he's the opposite he, because he spent years and years taking his flock through the, the Gospel of Luke that he really has Luke down cold. And then, oh, is that also in Matthew somewhere? And he's, he's not as familiar with Matthew. So it's good to get them both. God gave them to us this way for a reason, so we get to learn in, in every gospel. Uh, we were talking about this last week, about where, where is your treasure, where is your heart? We want to have our heart treasure in heaven. Uh, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust uh, destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then it goes on to say, <clears throat> the eye is the lamp of the body. Now, some people might disconnect those. I think they're connected. I mean, if you're, if you're not in the Word of God, if your eyes aren't where they're supposed to be, then how are you laying up treasure in heaven? If your eyes are misdirected, you're not laying up treasure in heaven. You're, you're focused on the earthly things, in which case, instead of soaking up the light, your eye is absorbing the darkness. <clears throat> so the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. <clears throat> if then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So we should have light. And we should be filling ourselves with light constantly. Okay? And this, um, this used to bother me a lot. It took me ages to figure out what this was even talking about. Because I, always, I, had, I had it backwards. I, my thought was, uh, the eye is the lamp of the body. Okay, so I'm standing there and I've got like superpowers or something and light beams are pouring out into the room, right? So 
which would be kind of cool if you had that as a superpower, you know. You wouldn't need a flashlight. You could just look around the room and your headlight beams would be, you could read at night in the dark and whatever. It'd be handy. But that's not, the verse actually turns the beams inward. The beams are going inward. And so, <coughs> which is actually how the eye actually works, when light comes in and hits your eyes and goes inward and anyway. So the Word of God goes inward, as theme called this, the eye gate or the ear gate. We'll see that next. Um, and so if, if doctrine is coming in, there's a benefit. You can be filled. You can be filled with light. And that's what it's about. In earthly terms, they would mock this or laugh at this and say, you know, your body doesn't fill up with light and whatever. But Scripture says this is what happens. The light from the Word of God fills your body. And likewise, darkness fills your body. And the filling of light or the filling of darkness has physiological effects, which we've studied also in other contexts. So if the lamp of your body, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. So keep your eyes clear. He that has an ear, let him hear. He that has an eye, keep it clear, right? So keep your eye clear so that you're seeing the Word of God, that you're taking it in, so that then you're full of light. Otherwise, if your light becomes darkness, how terrible is that? If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And uh, man, notice it's, it gets progressively worse. The longer and longer you stay in darkness, the darker and darker it gets. If then light is in you becomes darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. Either will hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to one and despise the other. So you can't have a little bit of light, a little bit of darkness. You can't uh, try to compromise with the world. Scripture would not have that happen. All right, now the parallel in Luke 11. So just imagine what you're filling yourself with. Are you filling yourself with light or are you filling yourself with darkness? And that's not to become a legalist. That's not to say that, well, you know, I don't want to watch certain kinds of movies. I don't want to read certain books or... Well, just in your reading, have discernment. And, uh, you know, if, you can, if, if it's entertaining and, you, and uh, you're reading a, a whatever, a good murder mystery or a Lee Child, uh, Jack Reacher novel or something, I mean, it's, it's not, uh, you're not sinning if you read something besides the Bible, all right? So you can read, uh, you can read uh, and I like Jack Reacher, he was an MP, I'm, I was an MP, so, you know, that's about where the commonality ends. But uh, <laughs> you can read a fictional novel and the good guys win and the bad guys lose and it's kind of fun in the middle and a lot of uh, swashbuckling and whatever. Great stuff, alright? But now, but then okay, then you're reading a section and okay, he's not a believer, he doesn't have a divine viewpoint and he picks up a girl and sleeps with her. And okay, Well, alright. I'm not going to ask myself. You know, how much of that do I want to read? And if it gets too much, well, just put the book away and find a better author, okay? If it's not, you know. And I think we draw lines, uh, we have discernment, and different people make different choices in terms of, in terms of that. Anyway, how much of the darkness do I want to absorb before I say, you know what, this is not, this is not a blessing anymore. This is actually detrimental. I let me, let's just be done with that. 
Luke 11, 34 through 36. So, uh, and here we got, I think we have both directions. Uh, no one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on the lampstand so that the, those who enter may see the light. Now that's an outward focused light. That's where we are the testimony. We are the light of the world. We should stand in a public way so that our light shines and that others can see that light. So I, you understand that's an outward directional uh, light beam. But then it comes to the inward again in verse 34. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. And this is why you've got to buy the eye salve to anoint your eyes in, in uh, the church of Laodicea there, Revelation 3. But then there's this warning, watch out that the light in you is not darkness. What happens is, is you could have had some previously digested doctrine. You could have had some previously accepted light and you've internalized it and you've learned it and you've brought it in. But then do you see what happens here? It gets changed. A subsequent darkness then enters and it affects the light that was previously absorbed. The light that was previously in you becomes darkened. And that becomes a danger. So if therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. So Luke kind of spells it out and gives more detail and gives kind of more of a of, uh, of, of information on that. Alright. Anyway, I think these warnings are, in, are, in, are important. And I think uh, the Scripture gives those warnings. Hold fast what you have. Let no one take your crown. Um, to acquire wisdom and with your wisdom gain understanding. That uh, just simply learning a fact that can get perverted later on with different facts and with different attitudes. And so we learn doctrine and we learn gnosis, but we have to keep, let, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. We have to reinforce it and make it stronger with more light so that we have epinosis, we have oida, we have sophia, because we don't want to take that knowledge and then pervert it with darkness. It'll actually end up changing the knowledge. And, and to me, that's sad. That's absolutely sad. And I've had it, I've seen it um, in, uh, in, in, in ministry when a carnal believer throws a verse at you <laughs> and they're doing it in anger and they're doing it in darkness and it just hurts because, you know, man, I taught you that verse, but that's not what that verse means and that's not what that verse, you know. But, they, but they've twisted it. They, they think now it justifies what they're doing. They think that it, it supports their, you know, and it, it doesn't, but they think it does. And it's just, uh, it's just, it's, it's horrible. And I think that's the illustration what this verse is warning about. Don't let the light be turned into darkness. See? So that's the, uh, the admonishment there. And sure enough, here he is talking about light and darkness, and so a Pharisee's going to perk up and he's got something to say. Um, Romans 15.4. Again, the light that our eyes should be fixed on come through the Scriptures. 
Whatever uh, was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. You in a time of testing right now? Get your eyes in the Scriptures. It's the encouragement of Scriptures. I love that expression. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Is He going to do that apart from the Scriptures? Or is He going to do that through the Scriptures? Say, why do believers think they can just close their Bible and put it on a shelf, skip church, and then somehow expect that God is going to you know, pour forth encouragement upon you somehow, like some kind of a beam of glory from heaven is going to make you happy when you're not in the Word of God. And you're not in the Word of God with your brothers and sisters in the church. So God gives perseverance and encouragement, but that's the perseverance of Scripture. You'll be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. You can't be like-minded if you're a hermit. If you're, if you're avoiding brothers and sisters, if you're avoiding the assembly. Like-mindedness requires community, requires humble community. And that's the whole uh, emphasis here in Proverbs 15. Finally then, Ephesians 1.18, here's a prayer that through the Scriptures we're going to have an understanding of these things. Ephesians 1.18 Backing up to verse 15 then. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. What's that about? That God's just going to glow and we're going to kind of somehow gain a mystical understanding? No, it's going to come through the Word of God. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Here it is again, brightness of eyes, like the idiom in Proverbs 15. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe. This is, uh, this is a powerful prayer. This is what we should be praying this at the beginning of every Bible class. Lord, open my eyes. Open the eyes of my understanding. Enlighten me to the truth. There's a message that's coming forth here, Father, and I need to see it. I need to hear it. I need to live it. These are in accordance with the workings of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that enlightens us in our doctrinal studies from the Word of God. Raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. That power is the power He employs when He opens the eyes of our understanding and shows us these glories in the church age. That's amazing. So, and if you think about it, what a, what a joy to have this happen in a community, a humble community And that can be the humble community of your local church in the church age. That can be the humble community of your family at family reunions, your clan, if you will, uh, your nuclear family in your your household. That you can have your eyes open in your nuclear family in your household. Is the Word of God opened in your home? Is there enlightenment that then happens where you can see, where the bright eyes can uh, gladden the heart? And when the good news can put fat on the bones... 
That's the other part of Philippians, of uh, Proverbs 15, 30. Good news. Do you know how much good news there is in the Bible? There's a lot of good news. And what I'm really starting to get convicted by is I think I've not been fair to good news. I have not been fair to the gospel. I have not been fair to gospel applications beyond we tend to limit gospel to one thing and one thing only. You know, the gospel. The, uh, we talk about the gospel. The uh, information pertaining to eternal life by faith in Christ. Okay? And, and that's, that's great. I love it. Okay? And I agree. That is the gospel, but it's not the only gospel in the sense that there is good news in many applications. Good news. Are you facing a financial test? Scripture has good news for that test. Are you facing a health test? Scripture has good news for that test. There's good news for every conceivable situation, not just the uh, lost estate of, of a sinner going to hell. Okay, Yes, that's good news. We call it gospel. And when you accept the gospel, you believe in Christ, you receive eternal life. But there are, there's an infinite number of gospels in the sense that the Bible is full of good news. And the good news that puts fat on the bones is, is, the, uh, is the word of goodness. I mean, what, show, me a, show me a word in this Bible that's not good, right? It's all good. The word of God is pure. The judgments are, are true. And you've got, you got different expressions for doctrine throughout the, throughout the Scriptures. So when I read here in Proverbs 15, 30, put uh, B, good news puts fat on the bones that's more than just gospel information for how to get saved. That's, uh, that's all the good news applications that come to how to live my Christian life, how to glorify Christ in my marriage, in my family, in my ministry, in my workplace, in my neighborhood. Okay, And there's good news for every application. So it's more than that. This is something too I want to start, I want to talk to Doug, I want to talk to Fallon, I want to talk to evangelists that have euangelistes ministries and uh, get them to be thinking in terms of there's more good news out there besides, uh, besides uh, how to not go to hell when you die. Okay, So don't stop giving the gospel to unbelievers, but then also keep preaching good news messages to us believers because we need it. Uh, every believer needs good news. And, uh, you know, I mean, who, who do you know that doesn't need good news? And so if you need a good news message from the Word of God, the pastor is not the only one that can give that to you. There are gifted evangelists that are divinely equipped to preach good news. And so there's a tandem ministry there for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Evangelists and pastor teachers are a marvelous tandem in that, uh, in that expression. All right. I see Wes is furiously writing notes down. He's teaching spiritual gifts on Sunday nights. So, this, so if you want to be here this coming Sunday night, he's going to have some things to say about spiritual gifts. So bright eyes. What else do we have? We have eyes and we have ears. So we go from the eyes of verse 30 to the ears of verse 31. He whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. And this is interesting. He who, whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. This is what he will choose to do. 
And um, again, within community. So this would be subpoint F in the outline. Eagerness to hear God's wisdom generates divine guidance as to our dwelling arrangements, both dwelling and lodging arrangements. There's two terms here, and, and I, I don't want to neglect either one. I want to hit them both. Eagerness to hear God's wisdom generates divine guidance as to both dwelling and lodging arrangements. Dwelling is permanent, long-term. Lodging is temporary, short-term, stays. So you can think of uh, the house you purchase or the hotel room you rent. Okay? The, hot- the hotel room you, you rent is for a night or a weekend or a week or whatever, a very limited length of time. You would not want to rent a hotel room for 30 years. Um, but you wouldn't want to buy a house for a weekend. I wouldn't. <laughs> okay? Unless I win the lottery then maybe I could buy a house for a weekend. But uh, you understand, there's a difference between dwelling and lodging. Okay? And some of that shade of, of nuance then comes up in the Hebrew terms related to this. But if you are hungry for doctrine, are you going to live in a town that doesn't have a doctrinal Bible church? Or why would you? Uh, if you had to, because of a military deployment or whatever, if you had to because a job transfers you, I, I tell you, I'd be praying hard, Lord, is this the job I should be keeping? You know, I'm, I'm not a slave, I could find another job. What, uh, I'm, I'm going to live where the Word of God is taught. I'm going I'm to make sure my wife and my children are in a place where they can get doctrine. I'm not going to move to a place, you know, when, when Will and Kendall Johnson moved to Glendale, Arizona, item number one was, what church is in Arizona? What pastors do you know in Arizona? Who teaches doctrine in Arizona? All right. And that's exactly the first question that ought to be asked. Because, uh, you know, if you're going to go to Timbuktu and there's no doctrine there, uh, I think uh, you may pray over the will of God. Is that His geographic will? Is that where He wants me to be? So uh, there's a lot of verses as it relates to the uh, divine guidance as to the geographic will of God, and in particular in dwelling in the house of the Lord forever, right? Psalm 23 I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm going to be in the Word of God for all of my physical life. And then thankfully, in glory, I'm going to be in the, will, in the Word of God for all eternity. And uh, how fun is that going to be? So, for dwelling and lodging and raising. I think we'll see what this is talking about. But he whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof. So, there's another crowd, okay, whose ear chooses to ignore the life-giving reproof because they don't like it. Truth is truth, and they would rather that it didn't say that because they've got a sin pattern that likes to do these things, and so they don't want to listen to that reproof. And if you're negative to doctrine, where are you going to live? If you're negative to doctrine, then your choices of uh, dwelling um, will be different. It won't bother you to live a distance away. In fact, you might like to live a distance away. Uh, living a distance away might then be a fashionable excuse to say, oh, well, it's just so far to drive. Sorry, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll listen to the MP3s. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the ticket. I'll listen to the MP3s. I'll, I'll keep up on the website. Are you really? 
Okay? No? If, uh, if you're not, if you don't have the ear to hear, then it may not bother you to, to move somewhere where it's not available. You might kind of like it. Or you might want an ear tickler because you don't want to listen to the life-giving reproof. You much rather listen to the, to the, the happy prosperity message that tells you God's okay with your sin. And so you, that's where you live. All right. So in terms of long-term dwelling, uh, the term here is actually a short-term dwelling. Uh, the term that's used in Proverbs uh, in verse 31 will dwell, really it's will uh, lodge. It should be translated lodge rather than dwell. It's really a much more short-term aspect. And so both in our long-term arrangements and our short-term arrangements, uh, the Word of God is a, uh, is a criteria. But let's start with the long-term. Uh, Genesis 13, you know, it's curious to me when, at, when Abraham and Lot decide they need to separate and uh, when they make the choices of where they're going to live in Genesis 13, I wonder, okay? Now Lot was his nephew. Lot was a believer. He had a righteous soul, we're told. Lot traveled with Abraham from Ur to Haran to Canaan. Was with him that whole time. Conceivably even down in Egypt and then back from Egypt here in Canaan, and then uh, and, and as a believer. And, and Lot, Lot's an interesting character, and, and even though God said, leave your family and go to the land I will show you, Abraham's obedience was uh, not exactly 100%, because he didn't leave all his family, he brought Lot with him. And I think that uh, caused issues. And the Ammonites and Moabites will cause issues historically as nations. But Anyway, so finally they have to settle. And there's a conflict. Abraham is very rich in livestock and silver and gold. And uh, he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So I think Abram is making his living arrangements based upon spiritual criteria. He says, that's where the altar is. That's where I call upon the Lord. That's where I had fellowship with Yahweh. And so that's where he went, between Bethel and Ai, to his campground there. Lot went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for the possessions were so great they were not able to remain together. And if the land obstacle could be overcome, the personality conflicts could not. In verse 7, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And I think uh, the strife reflects the leadership. The strife reflects the attitude. I expect that Abraham's uh, herdsmen, uh, they were, I imagine, positive to doctrines, uh, strong in faith. You know, if he needs to grab some herdsmen and go attack five armies, he'll do it. And uh, that's, that's incredible to me. And then there's Lot's. Remember, Lot was in that rescue when Abraham grabbed his herdsmen and said, let's go get Lot away from Keterleomer and, the, and the, uh, the things there. That comes up here in chapter 14, by the way. Anyway, so there's conflict. And so Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me or between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. And there should be harmony between brothers, kinsmen, 
uncle and nephew. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left I will go to the right, or if to the right I will go to the left. Now this is actually a subdivision um, of the land grant. Abraham is giving Lot his choice of the land. And it's curious to me because there are millennial promises to Moab and to Ammon, and I can't explain why Moab and Ammon get millennial promises. They were wicked, wicked nations. The only good Moabite I know of was Ruth. And uh, the only good Ammonite I know of is a guy whose name I can't remember. As uh, one of David's mighty men was an Ammonite. Um, but beyond that, they were wicked, wicked nations. But they've got millennial promises. Why? I believe it's because, my only conclusion is because Abraham gave a land grant subdivision by promise to Lot. And it was his. It was his promised land grant. So Lot looks around and he does not make doctrine his top priority. Otherwise you don't settle in Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, seriously. How do you end up there? So, because he got to pick first. So is not the whole land before you separate from me? If to the left, I will go to the right. If to the right, I will go to the left. You choose, I'll take the alternative. So Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the fire and brimstone, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. Everybody knows how great that land was. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward, Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom, where the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. So priorities. Where are your priorities when you choose? Are you listening to God's wisdom? Is He generating that divine guidance for where you're going to dwell? That's, uh, I think, a pattern. All right. And could you imagine the what-if scenario? What if Lot would have taken the the hill country of Judah and then Abraham would have turned to the valley of Jordan and said, wow, those are some cities that need the gospel, right? And Jesus even hinted when He said if these miracles had been done there they would have repented and remained. You know, imagine that what-if scenario. Lot chose that ground, Abraham went here and did the Jesus miracles, got them all saved and Imagine, well, we'd have a different Bible today, but so that's that. Exodus 2.21. Exodus 2.21. And uh, Moses is a fugitive. He's fleeing from Egypt. And uh, he's got to make a decision on where he's going to live and uh, this is where he meets um, Jethro, the priest of Midian. How about that? He's a priest. He serves Yahweh. He's got doctrine. And he's got seven daughters. <laughs> hey, it's getting better. Um, no, the doctrine is the first priority. He will marry the daughter of Zipporah, but she's actually kind of detrimental in some things. And so, um, anyway... He's not called Jethro. Later he's called Jethro. Here he's called Rule, their father. And they, uh, why are you back early? Well, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. So, uh, you know, this, this guy did the work of seven all by himself. 
And he said to his daughters, Where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. So Moses was willing to dwell with the man. And he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses. So dwelling, I mean, where are you going to live? This is going to impact everything. It's going to impact your business arrangements. It's going to impact your military service and obligations. You know, if, if this is now where you're dwelling, then you're, you're going to be called upon militarily to defend this land. Um, you're going to be working for this Lord. Are you going to be marrying his daughter? There's more business contracts to sign there too then and more issues related to that. He was willing to dwell with the man. And this is, I believe, God's wisdom generating divine guidance as to where to dwell. If God is showing you that uh, you're not going to be Pharaoh, <laughs> all that, that cushy life in Egypt, that's gone. You threw that away when you murdered the Egyptian. Now you're a fugitive. See? And so don't boo-hoo and say, well, I made a wreck of my life. God can never use me now. Uh, I'm just a loser. Now I'm, uh, you know, I've, I've lost the wealth of Egypt. Now I'm sitting here in the in the deserts of, of Midian. No, you're exactly where God wants you because there's a priest of Midian there that's going to bless you for years to come. Your father-in-law now is going to be a source of wisdom and teaching for you. And that's, uh, that's exciting. All right, Psalm 23. Psalm 23. We know Psalm 23, don't we? And it's uh, <clears throat> almost in a, in a Moses situation. We talk about the different terms for dwell, to remain, to abide, to dwell, to live permanently, to sojourn, uh, to lodge. This is actually a verb of repentance. This is a verb of return. You could, instead of dwell, you could translate it return. And, and really... Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, is this an undeserved suffering time of, of, uh, of testing or is this a divine discipline deserved suffering time of, of consequences for his sin? I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If he's going to return to the light, then uh, God will make that happen. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I think when he composes this, he's out of the will of God at the moment. He's thinking, I've got to get back in the will of God. Here I am walking in the valley of the shadow of death. I'm surrounded by enemies. And I'm surrounded by enemies. And what's God done and gone? He's gone and done and gone, gone and done. He's, he's done prepared a feast here. What am I doing here? It's like the prodigal who wakes up and he's looking around and there's pigs eating better than he is. And he says, what am I doing here? I've got to go back to my father's house. And so here's God preparing a table before him in the presence of his enemies and uh, he's going to return. You have anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. No matter how far I run from the Lord, can I outrun him? Or is this grace going to track me down and bring me back? And I will return to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Dwelling in the house of the Lord. And Solomon hadn't built the temple yet. Solomon hadn't been born yet probably. I think this is one of David's earlier psalms. I think 22, 23, 24 were very early in the life of David. Pre-Bathsheba, pre-Solomon. 
and yet I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's no temple, there's just a rotting, decaying old tabernacle that was so run down, David was kind of embarrassed at how shabby it looked when he was living in his royal palace. And yet I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That means a believer with ears to hear is going to center himself with other like-minded believers where the Word of God gets taught, where he can listen to the priests, he can listen to the prophets, he can listen to the Bible teachers. Because he's got an ear to hear and that's where he's going to live. That's where he's going to dwell, that's where he's going to lodge. Alright, there's so many more to this and I'm out of time. So, um, Okay, well we did E and F, we did most of E and F. We'll pick up with F next week and then we get to G and H. And then we're done with Proverbs 15. We can move on to Proverbs 16. Thank you Father for your truth. Um, And Father this is to me this is uh, a wonderful reminder because uh, we've got brothers and sisters that uh, used to have eyes and ears to hear. Boy they would never miss a class. And uh, now they seem to miss more than they make. And now they seem to miss so often it's like, wow, when are we going to see them again? And it hurts, Father. And it hurts us in the broken fellowship and it hurts them in, uh, in their starvation uh, uh, malnourishment. So Father, uh, I pray that we, we certainly we pray for these folks and we reach out and try to be friendly and invite them to come back and let them know that we miss them. Uh, Father, not in a legalistic way. We're not taking attendance and judging anybody. Uh, and certainly there's no condemnation because it could be any of us tomorrow, Father. We can, uh, there's, there's, there's no believer alive that can't go cold to doctrine tomorrow, Father, because we're sinners, we're human. And uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So, Father, uh, thank you for this class on eyes and ears. Thank you for the reminder that where we dwell and who do we surround ourselves with? I want to surround myself with people that have the capacity to talk doctrine. They can, they can communicate a verse. They can share a principle. They can offer up a, a blessing and an insight, Father. And I, that, that's who I want to surround myself with. So I thank you for that. And then on the occasions that we have a chance to witness to the unbeliever, um, <laughs> steer those conversations as well, Father, as you see fit. In earthly things and spiritual things, or some of both, Let us be a witness and a testimony, Father. I thank you and I praise you in Christ's name. Amen.